going to be in 1 Corinthians, continuing our study, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Looking at the very end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, I feel like we've just flown through this book. It has been so fun to preach. I hope that you've been helped by it. I know I've been helped by it. I've had good conversations with a number of you as we've gone. And yet, we still have all kinds of edifying and good things to consider in the chapters ahead. Looking forward to closing out our year with the book. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to begin in verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Well, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, you say, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, ah, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, well, then eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved." Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I want you to think about four or five recent big decisions that you've made. Maybe it was a job that you took, a relationship that you've come into, maybe it's a big expense. We make majorly complex decisions 
all the time, don't we? But I wonder, what's the thread as you consider those four or five recent big decisions that you've made, what's the thread that holds them all together? What ties together your recent decisions? Let me put it another way. Let me see if you can finish this sentence. You can do so quietly on your own. Whatever I do, that is, whatever decision I make, whether I go right or left, whatever I do, I do it for, what would you say? If you're really being honest, what would you say? What would you fill the blanks with? I do it for success, for myself, for my family, for the glory of God. Now listen, none of those things that I just mentioned, success, You, your family, other things, none of those are bad things. They're actually very good things. But very good things can very easily become ultimate things in our lives, can't they? Many of you have heard me talk about Christian decision-making before. I did college ministry for a number of years, and there were no more common conversations than how do I make the big decisions in my life? And people are often surprised that the Bible makes Christian decision-making actually very easy. The decisions that we make may be complex. Our life may be complex. The various implications and consequences of our decisions may be complicated and complex, but the basic framework for how we make godly decisions is really not that difficult. We often look for golden fleeces and signs in our lives to wonder if God is showing us His favor in this or that decision, or we go after that kind of ever-elusive sense of peace, whatever that means. Well, in chapters 7 to 9, the Apostle Paul, as you recall, has said, we make all kinds of decisions. On what basis do we make them? What's the framework for making them? But here in chapter 10, Paul brings those handful of chapters to a close. He's tying a, a bow on it, as it were. And he's doing so by giving us the framework by which we make all those kinds of decisions. It's really quite simple. There's two steps. There's two main steps. You can notice the first step in verse 31. Consider, first of all, in your decision-making, the glory of God. Consider the glory of God. Will this decision that I'm making bring God glory? And then verses 32 and 33, he says, you need secondly, here's the second step, to consider the good of others. Is this decision that I'm making, will it make me more loving to others or less? Will it help me serve others more, beginning with the church and then those outside of it, more or less? Jesus famously put verses 31 to 33 this way. The lawful life looks like this. Love God and love others. That's your framework for Christian decision-making. So I mentioned two simple steps. You can see them there in your passage. First, does this decision glorify God or give His glory to something else? So that's a question that we need to be asking ourselves anytime we're making a big decision. But secondly, does this decision have the good of others in mind or just my good? 
Paul says, chapter 11, verse 1, that when we make decisions that are primarily motivated by loving God and loving others, then we're imitating his way of life. He's saying, I'm not asking you to travel any path that I myself have not already traveled. See all of chapter 9. But even more than that, when we make our decisions like this, motivated primarily with love of God and love for others, then we're imitating Jesus. Our priorities are aligned with his priorities. And so I wonder, how does this play out? Practically speaking, how does it play out in the context of the passage that we're in? Last week, you may remember, I preached from the beginning of chapter 10 all the way through verse 22. Well, today, what I want to do is I want to rewind all the way back to verse 14. We're going to do it again a little bit more quickly because in verses 14 through 22, we're going to see Paul apply these guiding principles negatively in verses 14 to 22, and then in verses 23 to 30, positively. He's going to take these principles of verses 31, 32, and 33 of doing all to the glory of God and seeking the good of others, and he's going to apply those decision-making principles negatively and then positively. I'd have you follow along with me. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. You can just scan through the paragraph there. In 14 and 22, Paul's talking to those that think that they can flirt with idolatry all they want. After all, they're free in Christ, aren't they? And Paul says, yeah, that's true. You may be free in Christ, but you're not free to do whatever you want. There are limits. And so what we see here is a straight-up application then of verse 30. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And so you can't say, Paul says, you can't say that you're doing what you're doing for the glory of God if you're participating in religious ceremonies that give glory to other gods. So Paul says in verse 14, flee idolatry. Anything else or any decision that we make, he says, that ultimately breaches this first step in our lives is likely an idol. So when we're talking about idols, what are we talking about? Remember, we're not just talking about painted bits of wood or stone. That, that may be true in many parts of the world. That's a little alien to us as Westerners. An idol, if we want to just be definitional with it, can be anything or anyone other than God that you identify with, anything you glorify because you think that thing or that person can ultimately make you holy and happy. It's when you're faced with a decision and option A is glorify God, trust God, obey God, but we choose option B over and over and over again instead. Chances are, whatever it is behind option B is some kind of idol. And behind that idol, whether it's false worship and a false religion as we see here, or whether it's wealth or health or relationships or whatever it may be, whatever it is that we think we need over and above everything for our holiness and happiness, behind that idol, Paul says in this paragraph, is demonic influence that aims to lure you away from the living God. And so the stakes are high. Paul says in this chapter, remember Israel in the wilderness. Remember how they were privileged, just like you were privileged. But also remember that privileged people can fall. Remember how when they had the choice between glorify God, trust God, obey God, and glorify something else, 
Recall how time and again they chose the something else. And the consequences, as we saw last week, were disastrous. That the opening 11 verses of chapter 10 are grim. And that by the end of it, what we see are corpses scattered all over the desert. So Paul says the stakes are high. We don't want to play fast and loose with our hearts as there are spiritual forces that are committed to drawing us away from Christ and the gospel. So Paul says, yes, amen. You are free in Christ. You belong to him. He purchased you with a price. But you're not free to take what exclusively belongs to him and whore it out to something or someone else. And I use provocative language there because that is the kind of language the whole Bible uses to talk about idolatry. It's spiritual adultery. It is unfaithfulness. That if you've been joined with Christ, if you participate in him, in his life, in his gifts, in his riches, then you are not free, Paul says, to join yourself to another. That's really the heart of worship, isn't it? So Paul's pointing out in verses 14 to 22, all worship is, in one sense or another, participation. That's the line in the sand. So how can we know when we've crossed the line from freedom into idolatry, from glorifying God to giving His glory to something or someone else? That line, Paul says, is participation. You can just scan through the paragraph beginning in verse 16 all the way through 21, and he repeats the same concept over and over and over again. Participation, partake, participants. And he says in verses 16 and 17, positively speaking, when we come together at the Lord's table, we participate in Christ in a special way by His Spirit. That He's present with us, speaking to us by His Word, and He dwells with us by His Spirit. We are all one with Him, and we enjoy communion with Him. We identify with Him, and we commune with Him as, he, as we delight in the blessings and the benefits of the salvation that He purchased for us at the cross. Which is to say that the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial service. It's like a vow renewal ceremony. Consider when a couple renews their vows. They're not getting divorced and then married again. They're renewing their vows as a married couple. They come into the ceremony married. They leave the ceremony married. No change in their relationship has occurred. They're merely publicly affirming what they've already committed to and enjoy for the sake of their own edification and for the sake of public witness. They're saying that after 10 or 20 or 50 years of marriage, you are still the one. I love you, and I'm committed to you. Your name is my name. And when people see me, they will know that I am yours and you are mine. And even though temptations are all about me in this world, all the time that would draw me away from faithfulness to you, I will forsake all others. And I will be faithful to you alone. Because we are one. That's participation. 
That's what Paul's talking about in verses 16 and 17. That each time we come to the Lord's Supper, we are, in a sense, publicly renewing our covenant commitment to him. We publicly declare that in Christ, we have everything that we need in him to be holy and happy. Amen? We don't need anything beyond him. We leave behind every idolatrous flirtation and every idolatrous infatuation. And when we come to our bridegroom, we have to leave our sin. You cannot love both at the same time. And only demons will tell you otherwise, Paul says. Beloved, bringing unrepentant sin to the Lord's table is as scandalous as inviting other lovers to attend your marriage renewal ceremony. They cannot go together. Now, it's true, only sinners come to the Lord's Supper. But if there is that thing in your life where choice A is glorify God and choice B is what you choose over and over and over and you have not turned from it, then it may be that thing is an idol and behind that idol is the demonic influence that would seek to lead you away from fidelity to Christ. And Paul says, if that's the table at which you're eating, you cannot bring that to this table. You have to leave it behind. That's Paul's point. Verse 21, I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. His point is that an idol is anything or anyone that we give ourselves to that takes glory away from God. And behind every idol... Or demons, those spiritual powers intent on opposing God and luring you away from fidelity to Christ. Participation. That's the line. You can't glorify Christ when you are wholeheartedly devoted to something or someone else for your holiness and your happiness. We all have a name for marriages like that, don't we? We call marriages like that a sham. It's a lie. That's idolatry. And idolatry is no less participation with demons, Paul says. And that's a staggering statement. So he says in verse 14, flee idolatry. It makes Jesus jealous. Because whether it's for that job or that relationship or that experience or whatever it may be, you're saying for this time in my life, for this decision, the God of the universe isn't God Something or someone else is. And that, Paul says, is demonic. Beloved, this is the staggering cost of Christian decision making. We are to flee anything that would take glory away from God, no matter the cost, full stop. Do all things to the glory of God. I wonder how many men have we known that call themselves Christians but have built their careers at the expense of Christ in the church that never intended perhaps early on to leave Christ. It's always a slow drift. But in the end, they loved money and they loved success and they loved stuff. That extra square footage, the boat, the weekend lake house, the travel. And all they had to do at first was give up church on a few Sundays and then Maybe over time, a few more until their commitment to Christ was just something that they did once upon a time back then. Jesus taught Matthew chapter 6. 
No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve God and money just like you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons and you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's one or the other. Now notice what Jesus didn't say in Matthew 6 is that you cannot serve God and have money. Money is not ultimately the issue. He said you cannot serve God and serve money at the same time. And so when that new job or that new promotion comes your way, I wonder how will you finish this sentence? Whatever I do, whatever decision I make, when that offer comes before me and I look at the numbers and I look at the benefits and I consider all of those things, whatever decision I make, I will do it for what? Paul says, the first question, step one, Christian decision-making is that I will do all things to the glory of God. That's the first calibrating reality to every decision that we make. So what will you say then? If you're being honest and that decision is tempered by step one that we saw there in verse 30, are you willing to do all things to God's glory even if it's personally costly? Listen, money m- money's just numbers and paper. Promotions, that's just a different office with a different chair. But behind all of those kinds of things is potentially a demonic power that would love to tempt you to replace Jesus' glory with something else. And Paul says, that's the danger. Not the job, not the office, not the salary. It's that demonic influence behind it that will convince you that this is what I really need to be holy and happy. Such that without it, I can't imagine how I would be. That's idolatry. Or what about social costs? Your Hindu friend invites you to a friend's wedding that includes offerings to a god. Do you go? Can you participate? Paul's saying not if it means that your participation gives tacit approval and glory to another so-called god. You can't do that. Or perhaps more close to home, what if your gay family member invites you to participate in their so-called wedding? Can you go? Are you free to participate as a public witness of their ceremony, of their union? Paul says, not if your participation gives tacit approval and glory to that which God calls sin. When your family member, whom you love, the one whom... You are so burdened to maintain a Christian witness to. When they look at you and they say, if you really loved me, you would be there to support me. How will you finish this sentence? Whatever I do, whatever I do, whatever decision I make, I must do it for what? How will you answer that question in that moment with that pressure? That makes decisions both easy and difficult, doesn't it? Costly. Step one is 
is a difficult step, not because it's conceptually difficult, but because, no, God is really calling us to things that oftentimes we don't believe he would really call us to, costly things. It's not so black and white. Some of you would just like me to say, do this, don't do that, but I can't do that because Paul doesn't do that. The right answer may be different for each individual as they consider their own hearts and their own circumstances, but the guiding principle in every situation and for every person is, will this bring glory to God? And so here's a suggestion. When you're having to make decisions like that, don't go it alone. Only fools do that. Find a faithful Christian friend. Tell them what you're thinking. Foolish Christians make big decisions by themselves and then just inform others later. Wise Christians invite faithful and wise saints into their decisions. Tell them what you're, what you're considering and ask, does, does taking this opportunity or marrying that person or spending this amount of money on this thing, do these things glorify God? Do you see something here that maybe I'm not seeing? Am I seeing the line clearly? Does it seem like I'm at all seeking my, my happiness or my holiness in this person or that thing and not in Christ? Do you see in this decision any possible spiritual dangers that I'm not seeing ways that it would cool my love for God or lead me to disobey him or potentially make it harder for me to be faithful in the church and to love the saints? And if you're the one that's invited to bring counsel into other people's big decisions, here's a few things that you might need to keep in mind. Number one, and this is the point of verses 8 through 10. First, guard their Christian freedom. Don't turn right and left decisions into right or wrong decisions. That can be especially tempting when that other person's decisions affects us personally. Maybe we're hurt, we get our feelings hurt by those decisions, and we want to bind them in a way that God and his word doesn't bind them. But even as you guard their freedom, Paul would say, I think verse 30, begin with step one. Well, brother, you're certainly free as far as I understand it, free to make that decision, free to take that job, free to marry that person, free to spend that much money in this way under certain circumstances. But let me just ask you first, how does this decision help you glorify God? Would it lead you to disobey any of God's commands or will it help you to be more devoted to Christ, to grow in the knowledge and grace of Christ? Will making this decision potentially confuse anybody about what a faithful Christian is? Well, you may very well be free to make that decision, free to take that job, free to marry that person, free to spend that money, but only if it isn't participation with a demon. Only if in that thing you don't ultimately say, I need this over, above, in addition, and alongside Christ to ultimately be holy and happy, such that without it, there's no way that I could be happy. Whether you eat or drink, Paul says. Verse 14, flee idolatry. Verse 30, do all to the glory of God. So that's how we apply the first principle. In all of our decision-making, we ask, does it glorify God? Am I being obedient to God? Am I trusting God? Does it give Him glory, or does it give me or something else glory? But now we're going to see in verses 23 through the end of the chapter, the principle applied positively. Put your eyes back on our passage. In verse 23, Paul turns a corner. If verses 
14 to 22 are concerned with what we're not allowed to do. Then verses 23 and following are concerned with what we are allowed to do in light of our Christian freedom. Once again, we see certain church members are making certain kinds of statements. They're sayings that are circulating around the church. Look at that in verse 23. Some of them are saying, all things are lawful. And Paul says, yeah, that may be true, but not everything that is lawful is helpful. Not everything that is lawful builds up, he says, strengthens, edifies. And so in the verses that follow, Paul is going to tie a bow on this entire section, chapters 7 and 10, saying, yes, a Christian is free in all things with exception. Step 1, verse 30, can you glorify God in doing it? Step 2, which is what he's going to examine in the following verses, we see it summarized in verses 30 to 31, If it would be glorifying to God, move on to step two. Step two is, would it be loving to others? Does it help you love others as Christ has commanded you to do? If it can glorify God, and if you can love others doing it, if it is helpful and edifying, then you are free to do it. The only question at that point is, do you want to do it? That's the complexity of Christian decision making. Step one. I want to do this thing. Will it glorify God or will it lead you to disobey God and not trust God? Yes, I'm going to glorify God. Great, move on to step two. What's step two? In your attempts to glorify God and doing that thing, is it going to make you more or less able to love others? Will it cause anyone possibly to stumble or is it going to build them up and edify them? Yes, I think I can love others and I think this decision is going to help me be more loving and more generous and more helpful and and help strengthen more Christians. Praise God for that. The only question at that point is, do you want to do it or not? And if you do, do it. If you don't, don't. And if you do it and it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. Make another decision. So it takes all the mystifying aspects out of Christian decision making. Does it glorify God? And now here in the last paragraph, does it help us love others? Helping them understand and apply this principle, notice Paul makes three quick rulings on food issues. Remember, this was the practical issue facing the members of this church. Can we eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols? And Paul's amazing answer, utterly amazing in light of his command to flee idolatry in verse 14 is this. Yeah, you can still eat. Go for it. What? We're presented with three situations. In verses 25 to 26, Paul takes us to the supermarket. Then in verse 27, he shows us a dinner invitation. And finally, in verses 28 and 29, he has us consider our table manners. He takes us to the supermarket. He's going to show us a dinner invitation, and he wants us to consider our table manners. Consider each one of them in turn with me. First of all, verses 25 and 26. Paul's taken us to the supermarket. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth and the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What is Paul saying? Paul, are we free to go to the temple market and buy meat? Paul says, of course you are. The meat isn't the issue. That's just cow. So don't ask where it came from. It doesn't really matter. Go buy the meat What matters is where you go and what you participate in, not what you eat. 
So he says, don't even raise questions of conscience. Just go by the meat. Because in verse 26, all that meat ultimately belongs to the Lord. The earth is his. Everything in it belongs to him, ultimately, because there's only one God. So enjoy it. Go get yourself a smoker, a David Hildinger approved smoker. We talked about this at our men's breakfast. Get that meat, throw it in there, give it lots of smoke, lots of heat, lots of time, and then invite all your neighbors over. They can't say no, apparently, according to David. But he says, don't even raise questions of conscience. All that meat belongs to him anyways. It all belongs to God. He's the creator. He owns everything. Just don't ask questions. Buy the meat, take it home, cook it and eat it. And don't lose any sleep over it. But in verse 27, he gives us a second scenario. Okay, he's going to move us from further away on the line. Like if this is the line of participation, he's starting further away from the line. And with each circumstance, he's moving us closer and closer to the line. In theoretical type situations. He says in verse 27, but what if a non-Christian neighbor invites you over for dinner or serves meat? In Corinth, a believer would have been deep in idol worship. It was woven into every aspect of social life. And so the meat that he's serving, no doubt, came straight from the altar to his so-called God. He's probably inviting you into the private feasting rooms in his temple. And you're so close to the line, that line of participation, that you're as close as you can be without participating. You're bumping right up next to it. And so you'd think Paul would say, okay, let's think about this invite. We've got temples. We've got idols. We've got potentially demons. No, you can't go. But that's not what Paul says. He says, are you disposed to go? In other words, do you want to go? Do you like the guy? Is it good company? Well, then go. But before you do, you need to ask yourself, when you sit down to eat and to drink, can you eat and drink to the glory of God? And when you do so, in the company that you plan to keep, is what you do helpful for the gospel's sake and serve to strengthen fellow believers who know what you're doing? Is it loving? If you take that invite, will you clarify or confuse your neighbor about what the gospel is and what it means to be a Christian? Is it explicitly religious in nature? If yes, then you may not be free to participate. But if not, he says, don't ask any questions. Just show up, drink the drink, eat the meat, enjoy the company, and don't lose a wink of sleep. But what if you accept their invitation because it's not explicitly religious? And you think everything's going to be copacetic, but over the course of dinner, the host starts talking about religion about how this meat should bring special blessings on those who are present at the meal because it was offered to a so-called God. He leans over to you and says, hey, psh, this was just offered to Jupiter this morning. Pretty good stuff, right? Paul says that changes things. Not because of your conscience. You know that that's just meat. It's just cow, and God owns everything in the earth. There's no God but the one true God. But Paul says it changes everything because their conscience is now involved. What they believe, it's that wiring built into every person made in the image of God that, that excuses or accuses them. It's a calibrating moral system built into his image bearers. 
that puts on warning lights as if like on a dash to say something is broken, don't keep going, turn around. Well, he's saying for their sake, knowing that you can't give tacit approval or participate in idol worship, you take the plate and you got to pass the plate. No, thank you. I'll stick with the asparagus. In this sentence, or in this instance rather, Paul says it would be unloving to give them the impression that you seek Jupiter's blessing by eating his meat on Saturday night and then showing up to the Lord's Supper in the gathered church on Sunday morning or afternoon or whenever they gathered. You may be free to eat the meat because you know meat's just meat and Jupiter's not a real God, but here's the deal. He doesn't believe that. That's the issue. God gives every man a conscience to tell them what's right and wrong, but by eating that meat, you may silence or sear his conscience. He's led to believe that somebody can be a Christian and a Jupiter worshiper at the same time and that there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a win-win, double blessing from both fists. The gospel's been confused, undermined. What might this look like today? Let's say a wealthy friend of yours offers his boat or his lake house for the weekend. No conscience issue there. I pray every day that somebody would let me use their boat. God knows that whatever we ask according to our own desires, James 4, we don't receive. Nothing wrong with that. It's a conscience issue. Not a conscience issue, rather. Don't ask questions. Enjoy his generosity. We would love to take you up on that offer, and I would love to drive your boat. I've been dying to bounce my kids off of tubes in a lake for years. That would be awesome. But then he starts to brag about how much it costs and how many hours he's worked or how it may have cost him his marriage or his relationship with his children, but hey, it was worth it. And you realize that this boat or this lake house is everything to that person and that perhaps his generosity is a way of justifying his idolatry. Or maybe even more explicitly, he lets it slip on how he's acquired his wealth and it's in somewhat shady ways. Now, you don't ask any questions, but he just won't stop talking about it. And these are similar instances we might need to say, listen, my friend, thank you so much. Thank you, but I'm sorry. I'm a Christian. I can't share that with you if that's how you got it or if that's ultimately what it means to you. Are you free to take them up? Are you free in Christ? Sure you are, because it's lawful doesn't mean that it's helpful. It's taking up that person's generosity most helpful for him as you aim to glorify God in your decision-making. What's most helpful? Or take the Hindu wedding. You know that there's going to be things offered to gods and you cannot participate, but then your friend invites you to the feast afterwards where no such sacrifices are made. And you, you love Indian food? No conscience issue there? Then go. Enjoy your friends. Spend time with them. Don't ask any questions. Don't lose any sleep. Or to take it back to your family member's gay marriage. Listen, you say, I love you. I am for you because I'm a Christian. I am for you for the gospel's sake. But I'm a Christian. I cannot participate in any ceremony that would give tacit approval to something that God calls sin. That would be to take his glory and to give it to something else. But after the ceremony or some other time, if you'd like to get dinner and spend time together, 
then we would gladly do that with you. Don't ask any questions. Don't lose any sleep. Go get yourself a good cut of meat. Smoke it. Invite them over for dinner. And do it all for the glory of God and hopefully for their good, for the gospel's sake. But to do otherwise would be to confuse them about what the gospel is and what God says and what a Christian is. And you can't do that. Now, I realize that some of us might be scared of making these kinds of decisions. Jesus said, don't think for a minute that I came to bring peace on earth, Matthew 6. Well, what was he talking about? I thought he did come to bring peace on earth. He teaches that when you come by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, lines in the sand get drawn. And there's going to be times where you're going to have to make big decisions And those decisions may end up costing you the favor of the people that you love most. For if any man loves his father or his mother or his brother or his sister more than me, he is not worthy to be my disciple. Fidelity to the gospel, he says, may bring a sword to the things in this world that we value most. Will it be option A, the glory of God, or will it be option B? No matter what I do, no matter what the cost, I do all things for what? That's the question that we have to ask all the time as we make decisions. But if you've considered step one and step two, you may want to think, how do I know if I'm doing the right thing? That's a lot at stake. It could be personally costly. Is is that really what what God would call me to do? Something that would be potentially painful or or sorrowful or, or costly? Well, in chapter 11, verse 1, it's an awkward chapter division in most of your Bibles for sure, but I think verse 1 in chapter 11 concludes the the previous chapter. Notice what Paul does. He takes all of those concerns that we have, those frightening concerns, those concerns about losing favor with friends and fracturing relationships and losing wealth and and getting fired from our job if we don't affirm certain things or whatever it may be. And he says, I just want you to consider this. Paul says, I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am not willing to do. Be imitators of me. But even more than that, he says, Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he himself was unwilling to do. He's not asking you to travel any path that he himself didn't travel. And was there ever a more brilliant life than his in all of the world even considering the cost. That he applied step one. That when it meant suffering and dying to bring glory to God, he prayed and he wept and he shut his mouth and he went to the cross. I do all things to the glory of God, whether I eat or whether I drink or whether I die. But secondly, He applied step two, even when it meant that dying brought the greatest good to others. Think about Satan's taunts in the wilderness. 
of how easily he could have relieved his hunger, about how easily he could have been relieved from his suffering and his temptation. He's the son of God. Or you think about the taunts when he was hanging on the cross. Why don't you just call down a legion of angels to take you off? Could he do it? No doubt he could. Why would he choose option A, glorify God, over option B, turn that stone into bread? Option B, call down a legion of angels to take you from the cross. Because not all things that are lawful are helpful. Not all things that are lawful are edifying. This is what it looks like, Christ said, for me to bring the most glory to God. And this is what it looks like for me, according to our eternal plan of redemption, to bring the most good to the most people, as the Father saves for himself a people for my own possession. We were bought with a price that he willingly paid, no less than his own blood. Can we not sacrifice, if necessary, a promotion or a raise or the good favor of friends for the glory of God or family for the glory of God? when we consider the one who laid down his own life for us in love. Friend, I hope if you're, if you're here and you're exploring Christian things, you might have heard in this chapter a whole lot of do this and don't do that, and that's really not what the Christian life is about. Ultimately, the Christian life is about the manifestation of the glory of God, your creator, in and through you, to the whole cosmos. That's the story of the Bible. And the way that he does that is he takes wretched sinners like you and like me and like everyone sitting in this room. And for all who turn from their sin and trust in him, his shed blood becomes the very source of the forgiveness of their sins and can be for yours. That he can clothe you with his own righteousness, that you would be acceptable to God, and so transform your life that you would be fixed for the chief purpose for which you were created, that you would glorify and enjoy God forever. Not those half baked idols that you've worshiped your whole life that overpromise and underdeliver time and time and time again. But the God who owns the whole earth and everything therein. And to give you the kind of life that is no longer about loving yourself, seeking your own good, but is able freely from joy to give yourself away to others. You realize that's what you were created to do. Christ can bring you into that and there would be no greater gift. Perhaps today would be the day that you would trust in him finally. So brothers and sisters, how do we make our big Christian decisions? Will it glorify God? Will it serve the good of others spiritually? If the answer is yes, I can glorify God. Yes, it'll help me build up and be helpful to other Christians. Then the only question remaining is, do you want to take that job or not? Do you want to marry that person or not? Do you want to buy that thing or not? If you do, do it. And if you don't, then don't do it. It really is, in principle, that simple. Let's pray.